From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Navigating through the minefield of misinformation, intelligence operations, predictive programming. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Welcome back to Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio for our second hour. Uh, before we uh, jump into our conversation uh, with George Zemueli, I had a quick announcement to make on behalf of TNT Radio for those listening. Last, They probably know last December, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20th and 21st at the UK High Court to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he will be extradited to the United States. TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required. Um, Then TNT will broadcast from various locations throughout London, uh, lighting the fuse for freedom. So that's just a very important thing to keep in mind and to keep focused on. Um, With that in mind, I'm very, very happy to be joined by a geopolitical analyst extraordinaire who is a senior research fellow with the Global Policy Institute. He is a co-host of The Gaggle, a fantastic show with Peter Lavelle, um, and he's a frequent guest in RT and especially Crosstalk. So, George Samueli, thank you so much for coming on. No, it's good to see you, Matt. And you must remember, you, uh, uh, you've been a guest of ours on The Gaggle and a very good guest. So thank you. For I was that. very honored. Thank you so much. So I figure we'll we'll just uh, have you come into my digital room now for uh, for right, a brief and then moment. you know you'll come back with us. Yeah, that's good. It'll be a great dance. Uh, so no, I mean, look, you're you're based in in Budapest, Hungary. Um, first question, I guess I got. It. We're just gonna like we're, we're as we discussed, we're gonna just improvise a little bit. I know you follow global events very well. You keep your finger on the pulse. So I'm pretty sure anything I throw at you, you're gonna have something interesting to say. Um. One, one thing I noticed, there has been a little bit of pushback, some stalling from uh, from Orban in Hungary, more specifically, or the, the, the leadership at Hungary, um, on the issue of Sweden ratification into NATO. Um, where, where, do, do you see this going anywhere ultimately, or do you see that they're, do you think that they're going to bend to the pressure? There's a lot of pressure. And also, also, secondary question on that, we know that there's a Nazi problem in Ukraine. It's been cultivated and groomed for a long time by western intelligence i know that finland and sweden also have sort of nazi skeletons in their deep history that that uh are not supposed to be spoken about in polite society um do you think that there is um a danger of the the mannerheim von rosen fascist impulses of world war ii within finland and sweden uh, is there some some dangerous kind of current that's similar to anything we see in uh, in let's say Ukraine right now? I, I do think that I think the uh, the link between um, pre-war Scandinavia, um, contemporary Scandinavia, and then uh, pre-war uh, war, and then post-war uh, Ukraine is Russophobia, a deep abiding hatred of Russians, abiding hatred of Slavs, a belief that these are somehow untermenschen, um, profoundly um, uh, inferior people. And I do think that the way Europe has mobilized um, uh, you know, against Russia, and, and this, this predates the start of the so-called special military operation. I mean, it began really, um, I guess, around, you know, 2016, maybe 2017, I think at the time of the 
the hysteria of uh, uh, Putin interfering in the Russian election, Putin, I mean, Putin interfering in the US election, Putin interfering in the um, uh, UK uh, Brexit referendum. And that kind of mounted this this hysteria and the Europe mobilized. You remember all the Skripals, you know, that whole nonsense that uh, Putin poisoned um, a uh, essentially a Russian traitor and so on. You know, no evidence was presented. So they, it, it resembles very much the way Hitler mobilized Europe. I mean, most people have forgotten that Hitler did mobilize Europe against the Soviet Union. Hitler didn't just invade by himself. He had allies. Admittedly, they were ineffective fighters, mostly. Uh, but nonetheless, um, among the uh, uh, countries invading the USSR in 1941 was Finland, Hungary, um, France, Italy, you know, you can you know, just start listing these, a number of the, you know, now all, you know, NATO members in good standing. So what, what's happened now is a mobilization of Europe of the kind that Hitler had, could only dream. I mean, he, he, he wanted Europe, but he also to, to mobilize against the Soviet Union, but he wanted the United States and the United Kingdom to, uh, to join forces. That didn't work out for him. Uh, it has worked out now. And uh, and then you have to really go back in history as to what is the origin of this uh, European um, Russophobia and why, why is it so easy to mobilize this, this, this hatred um, uh, against Russia? But going back to your original question, um, I, ultimately, I don't think Hungary's opposition to Sweden is going anywhere. I mean, there's a pattern with Orban, I mean, he's the bad boy in the classroom. He, you know, he, he's always difficult. Whatever, whatever the issue comes up, whether it's immigration, whether LGBTQ issues, or uh, you know, he's always getting into fights with Brussels. And sometimes he gets away with it. Sometimes he doesn't. There's always a point, like as with the bad boy in the classroom, when teacher gets fed up and says, "Well, you've got to do the homework." Or, or you know, you're going to have to go talk to the headmaster. Um, and I think th this is what happened when Orban was um, opposing the um, the 50 billion euro handout to Ukraine. He went up to the brink. He went to Brussels, and then finally he, he caved. And I think something like this will happen in Sweden. All, every single NATO member state is now ratified, including even Turkey. Only Hungary is the last holdout. It, it, yeah, I, I imagine it'll go on for a few more weeks. And then he'll finally cave. I mean, certainly Orban hasn't made any principled stand against Sweden's membership. I mean, you could. There are plenty of reasons why Sweden should be in NATO. But, you know, or Orban's objection is uh, exclusively that um, Sweden has been very nasty in its criticisms of Hungary and say, well, if you want us to give you, do you a favor, you know, you, how about you do us a favor and stop criticizing us? But Sweden hasn't let up in its on its uh, criticism. So, uh, but eventually, I mean, there's just no real room for uh, Orban. No one's going to give him anything. I mean, in, in the case of Erdogan, as you know, um, he 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 um, uh, had a price, and the United States was willing to pay that price, which is the forty F sixteen uh, fighter jets. In, in the case of Hungary, no one's going to pay him anything. I think Hungary is just too small a player. Uh, for anyone to bother too much with it. 
Okay, so the, when Ursula von der Leyen was saying, like, we need to come up with a new mechanism to avoid having to deal with unanimity amongst all the member states of Europe, uh, that's probably not necessarily um, as important in, in in the mind of the, the Brusselites and the... And the they could just smother with within basically pressure and patience any uh, dissenting voices in time. Is what I, you're I, saying. Yeah, I, I think so. It's just that you're going to get it done more quickly. You know, by yeah. insisting on unanimity, it just takes a little longer. I mean, they could have got um, Sweden into uh, NATO more quickly if they didn't have this rule about unanimity. I mean, of course, that's a little different because according to the NATO charter, it has to be unanimous. But what they're doing in the EU um, is now, particularly Scholz uh, and the rest, I mean, they're saying, well, let's have qualified majority voting so that we don't have to waste too much time uh, on the likes of Orban and to a lesser extent Fico. I mean, but Fico, Robert Fico of Slovakia, but he doesn't even uh, put up the resistance that um, Orban does. So it, it's not such a huge deal. By and large, the EU, fall, uh, EU member states fall into line pretty quickly. It's really always Orban who's just being the difficult boy. Okay. I got to go. So you touched on something I'd like to scratch on a little bit more. Um, you mentioned that there has been this deep Russophobia in embedded in the psyche of uh, most Western people in, in, in Europe and, and America and Canada where I live. Um, at first, you know, I was thinking, well, is this, is this due to the effects of cold war anti-communist, um, uh, propaganda that we were just subjected to for decades and decades and then no not really it can't just be that because even before there was a communist revolution there was still an anti-russianism embedded in the psyche of so many people in europe even before communism was a thing um so what what is your take well where, where did where what are the core or some of the more important influences for where this comes from why does it arise well i, I really think it's a it's a very interesting question um Back in the 19th century, Russia was seen as the bastion of reaction. Uh, we've seen, you know, this was an empire, uh, Orthodox Church, um, you know, something even pri pr more primitive than uh, feudalism, you know, um, and it was it offended uh, liberal uh, sensibilities. The the reason why that didn't really work out in the way that you know has worked out uh, subsequently um, today is that uh, you know so with the emergence of germany other states suddenly thought that this is a more urgent uh problem so like if if you th if you were looking at uh history in let's say the late 19th century and you think well where, who's the next war going to be against you would say probably against the russian empire so on everybody the country uh, everybody hates um but because of the rapid emergence of Germany uh, towards the end of the 19th century and the fear that this inspired, suddenly that was, that was all kind of forgotten and, uh, and, and suddenly Russia became a very useful uh, ally um, against uh, Germany. And, you know, rather <laughs> disgustingly, they essentially used Russia as cannon fodder um, against uh, uh, Germany. Um, much very much against Russia's interests, but they, they, that was the plan that they used Russia as cannon fodder. But then after, you know, World War One, I, I mean, that's that's got to remember. I mean, Hitler, uh, not Hitler. I mean, Imperial Germany imposed the um, uh, the Brest-Litovsk Treaty after World War One, and while it's true that the Brest-Litovsk Treaty was cancelled 
at the Paris Peace Conference. Nonetheless, its actual you know, principles, the actual points that there were in Brest-Litovsk were recognized by the Western powers. So all, everything that Germany did to Imperial Russia at Brest-Litovsk was then recognized as basically the, the you know the, the uh, accepted international borders of uh, Russia, and you know if, if you then think about the uh, alliances that were formed after the Paris Peace Conference, were, these were alliances directed at Imperial Russia. I mean, the alliances we all this that the little Entente was a little Entente that was directed at Russia, and um, and and that's why Hitler's calculation was that he will be able to mobilize the continent um, against the Soviet Union. He, he didn't really see any problem in that because he, he assumed pretty much all of Europe would go along with it. He kind of bungled it, you know, he, or, you know Britain behaved in an un unpredictable way, um, and that didn't work out for him. But it, it's constantly there, and it's a, cons and a, and a consistently... You know, when you see right after World War II, the uh, the emergence of NATO again, the the idea of NATO was that oh well, uh, we're, we're so we're so afraid of um, a, a Soviet Union, the Red Army marching onto um, the English Channel. But if that's the case, why are you bringing in countries that are no, nowhere near the Soviet Union? I mean, why is Portugal in NATO? I mean, Portugal was one of the earliest members of NATO. Um, and so, in the, so already at, that, at such an early stage, you were mobilizing the continent against the, the Soviet Union. I mean, it was it was already bringing in all sorts of countries that couldn't possibly be afraid of anything from uh, the Soviet Union, but you were already kind of forging a kind of incipient military alliance against uh, uh, against Russia. And people said it at the time. I mean, you know, NATO was by no means universally accepted. Um, when when the North Atlantic Treaty was uh, signed in 1949, a lot of critics, like Walter Lippmann, uh, uh, who said this is a really bad idea. You're essentially mobilizing uh, a continent um, against the Soviet Union. They're going to feel threatened. You know, there's no question they're going to react to this um, to this uh, to essentially a, a threat. And this is always forgotten. NATO came first. The Warsaw Pact was not uh, adopted till. 1955, six years after the North Atlantic Treaty, and then only in response to Germany, West Germany, being inducted into NATO. I mean, I mean, it's no, no wonder yeah. that no, no, I, I, it, felt threatened. It, it's so important this whole cause and effect thing, reaction, cause and reaction, mm -hmm. because we we've been given a, a framing of of history to make it seem as though we have always been the good guys, the champions of liberty yep. and justice and democracy right. against the big bad authoritarian personality types of, of Eurasia that have wanted to take yeah. over the world. And and in fact, when you look at things like the the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact as well, like, yeah, that's that's evidence why Russia is is like, you know, fascist Nazis. Same thing. They were they were working on carving up the world together. And it's like, yeah. wait a minute. No, that that actually happened after the Munich betrayal, not before Hitler was yeah. trying to get uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, Stalin was working really hard to try to get some sort of mutual security pact uh, to protect the interests not just of Russia but of everybody against Nazism and and the British were working hard Lord Halifax and Chamberlain were of saying no 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 let's just help <laughs> let's let's ignore you and help uh Nazism take over Czechoslovakia take over Poland and and 
in fact, what you just said, that that's a big mystery for a lot of people who don't know right. what you just said, which is that that was always the point, <laughs> was to was rally exactly everybody right. to... Yeah. Yeah. So that being it, said, let's, it, let's, we're going to scratch on this and pull on this after a quick commercial break. When we come back on TNT Radio's Connecting the Dots, TNTradio.live. TNT's Misty Winston. She says, how is anyone still talking about October 7th? What Israel has done since October 7th is many times worse than what happened on that day by any conceivable metric. The only way to feel otherwise is to believe Israeli lives are worth many times more than Palestinian lives. How is Israeli suffering still being centered over vastly less significant acts of violence three months ago, while ex exponentially worse violence and suffering is being inflicted by Israelis right this very moment? If your nation is attacked and you respond to that attack by immediately murdering thousands of children with incredible savagery, then you forfeit any right to expect anyone to give a shit that your nation was attacked. Israel responded to the Hamas attack by doing something much, much worse than anything Hamas has ever done, and in doing so, completely delegitimizing itself as a state and completely validating everything the Palestinian resistance has been saying about the state of Israel since day one. Misty Winston on today's News Talk TNT. The Net Zero Con will leave millions of citizens dependent on state handouts. It isn't a theory. It's an agenda. There is no climate emergency. On air 24-7. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, I'm back for the second segment of the second hour on Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio, where I'm joined by George Zemuelli. And uh, we have been discussing the historic currents of our current problem. Where does this Russophobia come from? Has was Russia at fault for so much of the things we were told they were at fault for trying to take over the world as the commie supervillain world, you know, world government uh, that that justified everything that the CIA did, everything that NATO did for 70 years, overthrowing governments, murdering leaders. I mean, I don't know how, how it's a long list. I don't know how long that list is, but it's a long list of, of governments that we overthrew in the name of democracy and liberty, Vietnam Wars, Cambodia wars against terror you name it we did it uh, but it was it was it was had to be done it was it had to be done right i mean we we were trying to stop the kremlin from taking over the world and they definitely wanted to do that just like they do today right no obviously this is facetiousness uh we've been lied to today we've got a lot of a barrage we've got uh, navalny um we're being told he's been murdered by authoritarian nazi putin and uh and navalny the peace-loving humanist has been murdered um we've got putin apparently he's, he's deploying nuclear missiles in space that's something also the media newsweek has been covering all the mainstream media has been covering and, and amplifying that there's a lot We're, we've been given a lot let me get your take on some of the, these current boogeyman uh stories that are being unveiled to uh, scare the hell out of us navalny first thing What's your take on uh, on Navalny? Was was he just murdered by uh, for, for by his political enemies in the Kremlin? I would doubt it because I don't see what Russia would gain from uh, the death of Navalny. And and as we can see, it's actually a huge uh, boost and a huge shot in the arm for the U.S. and NATO. And you know they're all in attendance at the Munich Security Conference, and then they can all just. Uh, reach for the nearest microphone and go on and on about uh, the horrible tyrant, dictator, murderer, Putin, and how we must all 
resist Putin because of our values. You know, we have our values. And um, uh, so I don't see in, in, there's any uh, benefit uh, for uh, Russia in all of this. I do think, though, that Russia should have looked after his health and welfare much, much more than they did so, because uh, you know, if anything happened to him, this was in an inevitability that um, the West would finally get a, a, a propaganda shot in the arm. I mean, the, the West has had a, a hard time of it uh, recently. There was obviously the, the Putin interview with Tucker Carlson, um, which was, has been you know, a topic of extensive conversation. You know, a lot of people expressed some admiration uh, for Putin, certainly humanized him and made him into a very intelligent, sophisticated um, leader. Um, then, of course, now you've had the Ukrainian withdrawal from Avdivka, which means, you know, finally the, the, the Russians have taken the city. So that's, again, um, a, a blow to the uh, the NATO propaganda campaign. So finally, they get a, a NATO gets a, a shot in the arm. Hey, we told you, we told you what terrible uh, uh, pe uh, person uh, Putin is. And now they've got it, you know, they can maybe rectify another problem. Um, for the West, which was that the United States seemed to be dragging its feet about sending um, the $60 billion uh, for Ukraine. This will put pressure on the Republicans. The Republicans aren't that good at uh, withstanding uh, pressure, but now the, the, everyone's going to just pounce on them. Well, obviously, the Biden administration, but now all, you know, the, all, all of the uh, Republicans who are war hawks and neocons, now this will, you know, energize them and they're going to go right after, you know, Speaker Mike Johnson and particularly those obstreperous backbenchers like um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. you know, what are you doing? You know, you're helping this horrible, murderous monster. Um, so uh, this, this, I think, might help uh, getting this money to Ukraine. So everything that we've seen, it's a benefit uh, to NATO. It doesn't do anything for Russia, which, you know, I think should just common sense would suggest Russia would gain nothing from the death of Navalny. And, and particularly as he was yesterday's man. I mean, you know, you know leave, leave aside the question of whether he deserved to be in prison for 19 years, which seems like a weight excessive prison term. But he was there wasn't really much support for him in Russia. You know, you, you know, he's been sentenced to prison. No one seems to have been terribly interested in his fate. In Russia, he doesn't really command the following, the, even the limited following that he enjoyed 10 years ago. Uh, his campaigns like against corruption, I think people have lost interest in that. There's a serious war going on, so corruption is just on the back burner. So there's no there's no reason to get rid of uh, Navalny. So you know, again, if you go, I, I mean, of course, people are saying Qui Bono, you know, somebody else may have killed him, but... I haven't seen the evidence for that, but I certainly don't see any any reason at all why you know Russia should have killed him. Yeah, that that sort of preempted my my next thought because I was just reading a the, a military expert, uh, Alexander uh, Zimovsky, who was making a comment just on that point where he was alluding to the idea that Western intelligence, uh, Western agents operating inside of Russia um, killed him, and I was I was also hungry for some evidence of that, which is possible. Right. I'm very open to that. Well, exactly. <laughs> As I'm very I mean, open to such, you know. Right. Go on. That, no, that, that's the thing. I mean, you say, yeah, qui bono. Okay, I, I can see that uh, the West would gain a, a big uh, propaganda boost from his death. But just because they would they gain doesn't mean that they actually did it. 
I mean, if there's evidence, I mean, I, I would imagine it would be quite hard to um, to pull something like this up. I mean, they would have to go to this um, um, uh, to this uh, pr prison camp in the Arctic. But it's possible. I mean, you'd have to say, you know, I mean, who knows? You know, look at the visitors' logs. Has he had visitors in uh, in, in in recent weeks? Um, you know, you know, there may be. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 you know, you may well Questions have be, entertained yeah, throwing that out over there. the past week. <laughs> yeah. Things to look at, things to look yeah. for. Um, right. Okay, so um, the other question regarding Navalny that I've seen come up um, is that he has people have have called him a uh, an agent of influence of the Ameri of the MI six of George Soros. Um, others have said he was a hero. Obviously, I think anybody listening kind of knows our position on this. Um, mm -hmm. That the the popular image that was sold to a lot of young millennial. Uh, Russians and and you know people just who are basic media consumers in the West of him being this this democracy anti-corruption fighter was highly oversimplified and and just wrong. Um, what is your what what do you think when when people say um, he was an, an operative for Soros or MI6? Do you think that there's something to that? Yeah, I do think there's something to that. I mean, he started his career um, as a kind of nationalist uh, populist uh, figure um and um you know raising the sort of issues that you know nationalists and uh, figures on the right in russia raise which is hey you know we, we're being inundated with uh migrants from the caucasus uh and, uh, and that's still a, a constituency for people who do think that you know you know but, but as they do in the united states that hey we're, we're being displaced by uncontrolled migration cheap labor uh, whether it's from the Caucasus or from other um, Central Asian states, so that he, he embarked on that early in his career, wasn't too successful at that, um, and then he kind of, you know, he went to the United States and spent some time there at the Yale, you know, got a Yale fellowship, and when he came back, he kind of reinvented himself as a liberal, you know, with all standard liberal pieties, and then he became this anti-corruption uh, crusader, because you know. They got involved in various um, dishonest, fraudulent uh, practices, um, but he, you know, he, he was essentially kind of an opportunist. He was they were looking looking for um, the main chance. Um, but there's, I think, evidence, clear evidence that he was that money was being funneled to him by MI6. I mean, there's that uh, there's a video of um, one of his um, uh, assistants meeting someone from MI6. They're discussing uh, financing. So I think I, I don't think that's anything really one can argue about. Of course, he's being financed from abroad. And I think that's what undermined his um, position in Russia, because, you know, Russians were not going to support somebody who is clearly being uh, funded, supported by MI6 and the CIA. He's, he's therefore, he's obviously working for other countries' interests, not uh, the interests of Russia. And I think Russians are really fed up with it. You know, they had a belly full of those types of people during the 1990s. They weren't going to support somebody else like that. So he really had no, um, you know, you know, no, no su support at all. Um, I, I would imagine he got also very bad advice from his handlers uh, to go back to Russia. I, I evidently, after the quote, poisoning, unquote, which itself was a very, very bizarre episode. Um, but but then, you know, he was, uh, again, if, if, if Russia wanted to kill him, you know, that would have been the time to kill him. I mean, you know, instead they allowed him to be flown out to Germany. He received medical treatment in Germany. 
And then right. after he, he had um, received the medical treatment, he then went back to Russia. And I assume the reason that they sent him back into Russia was they thought that he would now galvanize a um, an anti-Putin uh, mass movement, and that didn't uh, materialize. Um, but but the the obvious thing was was clear that you know if if Russia wanted him dead, you know, and he suddenly had that collapse um, at the uh, airport that I think it was a Tomsk, I think either Tomsk or Omsk airport. Um, that would have been the time to take him into hospital, and then you know, lo and behold, it did. Instead, Russia went to a lot of trouble um, to be for him to be flown out to Germany, even though they had to have known that what's going to happen is the Germans are going to say yes, yes. We have evidence that uh, he was poisoned, poisoned. by Novichok. Yes. Wait, let's see the evidence. Well, we can't. It's uh, the evidence is top secret, highly, highly, highly secret. You know, only we've shown it to only to the OPCW. And then the Russians went to the OPCW. Can you can we see the evidence? No, no, no. You have to go to the German government. You know, they'll, they'll give you the evidence. So they they're never really shown any of this evidence of this uh, Novichok uh, poisoning. Yeah, no, I I I completely forgotten about that case of uh, how much work they went through to keep him alive in the first place. That's a wonderful. I'm going to be using that a lot. Thank you for reminding me of this. And it's true, like to think that oh, but they wouldn't do that. Well, Skripal, who saw the evidence? Who who has seen the evidence of what where we were is told? The, where is Skripal? <laughs> yeah, where where is where is yeah him? This poor daughter. Where where do they go? I mean, they were they were we could hear of nothing but them for for like every single day for a month, and then now they're gone. Like what what's going? And, and Berezovsky, like frankly, okay, he's kicked out. He's a, he's a non-factor politically, and all of a sudden he like dies in Britain. Um, right. Was he maybe suicide. more valuable? Very convenient suicide. Yes. Yes. Yeah, suicide. Exactly. I mean, it, it doesn't pay to be a traitor these days, loyal to a financier oligarchy, because sometimes you might find yourself more valuable dead and alive because then you create the basis of a new narrative that will be more just geopolitically expedient for those who are handling you when you're dead. Right. Um, right. So don't be a traitor. That's that's the lesson of this story. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, no, you get you get punished. Um, I, I remember once I think. Putin was asked about Skripal at the, at the time of the Skripal hysteria. And he asked something like, um, you know, well, did you kill uh, Skripal? And he said something, you know, all the lines of, why are we wasting time talking about a traitorous scumbag? He's not worth our even you know, spending 10 seconds discussing him. You know, that, that's a, that's the view, I think, of Russians. You know, he's a traitor. You know, he's, he's, the, he's a lowlife. So therefore... It's, it's just you know, there's not nothing to discuss, and and you know, and again, even the way the media presented Skripal as if he's a dissident, but it's not really a dissident. I mean, he's, he he was a traitor. He betrayed his country. I mean, it's like saying Kim Philby uh, was was a dissident. No, I mean, he was a traitor. He betrayed his country. He betrayed his friends, his colleagues, and everybody. So you know, he doesn't deserve any kind of respect as a as a dissident. Someone who stood up uh, against the uh, the big man. Yeah, he's a non-entity. It, it, it's what, there was. There was also what's the name of that that figure whose name is escaping me, who was like a, a um, an insignificant member of of the Duma and who got shot somewhere like near the Kremlin. Oh, um, um, Nick. What's his name? Um, uh, Nick, Nick, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> his name escapes. No, I, I so, yeah. so many disposable cutouts right. <laughs> are right. out there. So don't be yes, a disposable cutout. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The lesson is be a mensch. Yeah. Don't be a cutout. Um, <laughs> on the issue of so, 
the other thing that we're getting a lot of media, I alluded to it, is the uh, Putin is trying to put nuclear weapons in space in preparation for an oncoming uh, attack uh, against the free and, and democratic Western liberal world order, because that's what they do. That's what you do if you're um, a, an authoritarian like Putin is you want to destroy everybody around you because you just hate freedom. Um, so nuclear weapons in space, that's the new thing. Um, what's your take on that? Does, does Putin have it? Is there any evidence that Putin wants to put nuclear weapons in space? <laughs> well, I, I I don't know. I mean, if they, if they did that, they would somehow be in violation of the um, the outer space uh, uh, treaty that which they signed in I think 1967. Um, however, there is a real problem um, that these things in space, these satellites, the the United States is using these satellites to help. Um, Ukraine. I mean, they're using this as essentially this is um, gathering intelligence about um, Russian military formation, Russian military targets, and it is transmitting this information to Ukraine and, and enabling Ukraine then to attack Russians and destroy um, Russian targets. So if you think of these satellites, they seem to me to be legitimate military targets. I mean, whether nuclear weapons is the best way to hit them, but nonetheless, it's hard for the United States to argue that these satellites are not legitimate military targets. If you're using them in a war, you're using them in order to kill Russians, then they are legitimate military targets. And if, if, if at some point um, Russians really get fed up with what NATO has been doing in Ukraine, then this will be a natural first target for uh, Russia to attack rather than, say, attack Latvia or Poland or other because that that's NATO territory and you don't know how NATO would respond to an attack on NATO territory but this hitting satellites you say well okay I mean you're using them these are weapons you're using these weapons against us um it's not NATO territory I mean you, you can't call outer space NATO territory um we can you know knock you out and I think that Russia is I think sending a message saying at some point we may well hit these uh, uh, satellites because they are legitimate military targets. You're using them against us, and we're kind of getting a little tired of it. So, uh, again, I don't know if nuclear weapons are the most effective way of hitting them, but I think they definitely are uh, legitimate military targets. I, I don't know when you're in outer space whether you have any kind of uh, geographic delimitations. Well, this is that territory and that territory. I think it's once it's out there, you can just hit it. Yeah, I think that, that that's probably where it falls in the, the legal discussion. Um, all right, before we continue this conversation where we have a lot of things to still continue to uh, to pull on, uh, we're going to go for a quick commercial break on TNTradio.live and we'll come right back for more. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I really don't understand how this trial between Michael Mann and Mark Stein is continuing. And I don't know if Dr. Mann wanted to put his hockey stick on trial. There are so many holes in his argument. It is hard to believe. I don't even understand how people could have let that out without questioning it. And I've talked about this before. One of the biggest problems I have is he won't let anyone look at his data, at least no one that is skeptical of his data. And that should raise red flags. And I've talked about this 
many, many times. You can go and look at what the global temperature does. When it's warm in the eastern and central part of the United States and warm across Europe, usually the global temperature is elevated. Now, when it's cold in those areas, believe it or not, the global temperature is actually colder. The problem with this whole hockey stick and the recreation of temperatures from pine cones is the areas he looks at and draws his ideas from are usually cold when the earth is warm. So he would not be able to detect that. He would not know that because he's not a meteorologist. If he was a meteorologist, would he know it? Of course he'd know it because we talk about this all the time. They're called teleconnections. So if I were in there talking about this, I'd be asking, where is your meteorology background and are you aware of this going on? But in any case, this whole hockey stick idea of temperature recreation looks to be more of a hokey stick to a lot of us out there. And the first red flag is you wouldn't let anyone look at your data. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. When the world's endangered animals need help most, when their lives are at greatest risk, when they would otherwise be lost, the International Fund for Animal Welfare is there taking action to rescue the animals we love, to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. Navigating through the minefield of misinformation, intelligence operations, predictive programming, this is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's News Talk TNT Radio. All right, welcome back to the third segment of the second hour on Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. Um, we have been talking a lot about just how to, how to think through the loud noise of misinformation, disinformation that we're being subjected to. And I'm not talking about the conspiracy theories that Klaus Schwab and Ursula van der Leyen warn about that we need to you know protect citizens from. I'm talking about um all of the messaging that is weaponizing us to prepare for war with either russia and or china or some combination of the two based on the fact that our liberal world order is being threatened by authoritarians uh you know sounds a lot like the the sort of rhetoric we heard throughout the entirety of the cold war just being revived um on the issue of putin's recent discussion with tucker carlson it really, I had just read that up to a billion views or a billion people have watched this. I don't know if that means that one person's watched it, you know, three or four times. I don't know how you count that sort of thing, but that's all, there's a lot of people in this world who have watched Putin speak for two hours, throwing an immense amount of truth bombs um, in the course of this, this conversation. Do you think that this has completely shattered the years of psychological walls that have that have been built up to weaponize us against Russia? Or do you think it's just cracked them? What sort of effect do you think that that this uh, interview has had on breaking or at least derailing the the war momentum that's been planned against Russia? Well, I think, as I said earlier, I think whatever positive um, momentum that was built up um, uh, following that interview, I think has been now shattered with this news about um, Navalny and, and, and Tucker Carlson himself has come out very harshly um, about uh, 
um, what happened in Navalny. Um, and then, you know, Putin himself kind of gave a very odd interview a couple of days ago with a Russian journalist in, in which he expressed disappointment in the interview. He said something like, uh, well, you know, this uh, this American journalist, he didn't push me enough. He didn't he didn't um, uh, challenge me enough. And uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was really I, I'd have preferred a more challenging interview, which seemed a little I think un unfair to Tucker because I think Tucker went in, you know, with a view to essentially giving Putin a platform. Um, and I, 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 to be honest, I, I didn't think Putin made the best use of the time that um, Tucker gave him. I, I, I don't think you start off an interview with a long historical digression um, about what happened in the eighth century, because I think you know people who tuned into that interview, you know, they're raring to go. I think they're, they're naturally sympathetic to uh, Russia's position. And, 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 and the first question that Tucker asked was, was um, well, why did you do it? Why did you launch your so-called special military operation? What was it that you saw then that you know, posed such an immediate threat to you that you had to act? And I think that was an excellent question. And, and, and Putin ducked it by going into this long um, digression. So, and then when, and I, I, I looked over his speech on February um, the 24th of 2022, and indeed most of that speech is given over to talking about NATO, the threat from NATO, the, the expansion of NATO, the use of Ukraine as a kind of battering ram against uh, Russia. And several times in that speech, he brought up Barbarossa, June the 22nd, 1941. We can't allow that to happen again. So he saw an immediate existential threat of facing Russia then on, on you know, and that, you know, we can't allow another June the 22nd. Um, and but instead of going back to that and say, yeah, that was what we were thinking. That's that's the threat that we face, and we can't allow that threat. Instead, he just went off onto this historical digression. And made it seem as if the the issue is it's between Russia and Ukraine. Well, that's not what he said on on that on in that February national address. He said the issue is NATO. NATO is using Ukraine against us, and I think that's a correct analysis. But instead, by going on about the eighth century, it's made it seem as if this is an, a, a, some kind of a historic dispute between Russia and Ukraine. So that's very different from what he was saying back then. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, and I think the, the people who are watching were expecting him to really bring up NATO, everything that NATO has done and why NATO is such a, a threat to Russia. And, I, and I, that's why I don't think he made the best use of that uh, time that uh, Tucker gave him. Yeah. No, and you're, I, I, I share your concern as well that it seems like so much of the, the potency as well of, of that having gone so viral uh, has really been reduced by virtue of just the noise and amplification of Navalny's death, which has now sort of undermined a lot of that motion uh, for a lot of people, unfortunately. But still, despite all of that, um, Ukraine just suffered some serious defeats again. They've had to do a massive retreat um, at a very embarrassing moment as well during the Munich Security Conference. I know that there is a, a weird security pact as well that France and Germany signed with uh, Ukraine. Um, so I guess multitude of questions here. Uh, what 
what do you what do you think is coming next as far as will will this continue on the way it is uh what what is the security pact that that was signed between france and germany who are already self-sabotaging so badly um on every level you could possibly imagine they're they're being destroyed and they're being told to destroy themselves even more by enmeshing themselves even greater in a war which is obviously unwinnable um and Zelensky is is just completely dangling in the wind at this point it doesn't seem like like Tucker was clear that and and I think he represents a, a big uh a, a major voice within the establishment that that you know the, the Crimea Eastern Donbass all the all these these territories are not going to come back to uh, the possession of Kiev if anything Poland might grow a little bit maybe Hungary might grow a little bit who knows uh, <laughs> but where do you see this going next? Well, I tend to think that um, the the withdrawal from Avdivka um, is um, consistent with, I think, a change of strategy on Ukraine's part. I think they're just going to dig in. I think they're going to uh, dig mines, uh, uh, dig trenches, uh, lay mines, um, build all their fortifications, do, do what Russia did. And essentially, um, there'll be a kind of a de facto uh, line of separation between uh, Russia and, and Ukraine. I don't think Ukraine is going to be launching any more um, of these deadly um, offensives. Um, and in the meantime, I think Ukraine is going to use this breathing uh, uh, space to build up its forces again. And I think that's why they're signing these agreements with France, with Germany. They've already signed it with uh, with the UK. I mean, they have an obvious one with uh, the United States. In other words, they're going to just simply uh, have a kind of de facto um, partition or you know a separation of forces uh, in Ukraine. Um, there won't be any kind of a, a peace agreement. I don't think there'll be any kind of a negotiations. I don't think there'll be any kind of a, uh, an armistice. Um, but I think the, the fighting will be go on at a, at a lower level. The question then is, well, what happens then? And, you know, I, I've suspected that um, when the next NATO summit takes place, the July summit um, in Washington, which will be the 75th birthday party for NATO, um, that NATO is going to uh, bring Ukraine into uh, its club. Um, now, you could say, yeah, but... You know, it, there's still a war going on, and you know, there's a, there's a it, it de facto uh, occupied by someone else, and that's a, that violates NATO's own rules about um, bringing in new members. But I think they'll probably try to fudge it and say that, well, that's the way we did it with uh, Germany. We kind of inducted West Germany into um, NATO, um, and West Germany kind of claim that it spoke for all of Germany. So when you bring in West Germany, then in effect, you're bringing in all of Germany, even if de facto you're not bringing in Germany because there's an East German state. But eventually, you know, West Germany did indeed um, speak for all of Germany. And then German reunification was Germany under the rule of um, West Germany. And the whole of Germany was then uh, inducted into NATO. So I think they're going to think along those lines. I mean, the analogy isn't quite exact because there was no fighting within um, Germany, between West and East Germany. 
Um, so I think that, that they, they, they're going to try and do it. I'm, I don't know if they'll succeed, and I think it's um, it's a high-risk strategy um, for them to do it. But if I were the Russians, I mean, I, I wouldn't simply accept any kind of a de facto separation of forces. I mean, I, I would try to push on and take as much territory as possible um, because NATO might just present you with a fait accompli in next July, and then you're going to have a problem on your hands. Like you have to decide what are you going to do because Russia is very, very, very reluctant to get into any kind of a shooting war um, with NATO. So whatever you're going to do, you better do it now and don't wait for uh, July's summit. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I mean, that's the thing. I don't think that there's a single case of a country being inducted while they were at war with another country outside of NATO. That That is a weird one uh, to think about. And uh, yeah, I, it I is. It is. I agree. It's, it's very weird. Uh, on the other hand, I find it hard to believe that they're going to... Um, do another Vilnius. Remember, there was a lot of bad publicity for NATO after the Vilnius summit, when again, they just fobbed Ukraine off with promises of eventual NATO membership. They have to do something more um, this time. Um, right. And, and um, you, know, you know, I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's very weird to think NATO would, would be at war um, within itself and on its own territory. But NATO has violated a lot of its rules so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. NATO's That's my mistake. I, I, I hear you. And, and my mistake is I think I'm imposing rationality. Exactly. Uh, I'm projecting rationality onto something right. which is not animated by that right. that's that's my first error that i think i'm making right now that that's causing me a, a bit of cognitive dissonance there <laughs> uh <laughs> um so with, with the um during a recent speech or an uh, interview putin um endorsed biden basically said that uh that biden for president would be uh would create a much more stable situation he's much more um uh predictable um what do you think? Do you do you think that uh, that he's helping Biden, or is he uh, was he making an error, or was it a brilliant statement? I, I what do you, what's your take on that? I, I am a little baffled by it, and you know the only explanation that I could come up with uh, was uh, that he he thought that he would damage Biden by saying he he's my boy, he's my preference, um, because I think they remember what happened in twenty sixteen. Um, when it seemed like um, they they wanted uh, Trump to win, because they, I mean I think the Russians saw Trump as being an outsider. He's he's going to come with a different set of ideas. He was a, he's a businessman. He's a pragmatic figure. He's not part of the whole Washington foreign policy making elite. So he's going to take another look at the U.S. Russia relations. I think they they were quite enthusiastic about. I mean I don't think they interfered in the election. I think that's nonsense. I think, but I, I think they they looked positively. On um, uh, on Trump, and I remember when um, uh, Obama expelled all those uh, diplomats for because of the alleged uh, interference in the 2016 election, and then there was that that moment everyone was expecting that uh, well now Russia will expel American diplomats, you know, all within a few days of Trump becoming inaugurated as president. So this will happily destroy U.S.-Russia uh, relations. And how did Russia respond? It said, no, we're not going to do uh, tit for tat. 
you know, we're going to, in the spirit that we're going to turn up the other cheek, we won't expel any U.S. diplomats. And what happened then is, of course, then Obama and Biden interpreted that, ah, we were right. There is collaboration between uh, Trump and Putin, because it's never happened that Russia has not reciprocated and thrown out uh, our diplomats. Therefore, that's evidence for uh, Trump-Putin uh, collusion. So I think that that Biden, I mean, that, that Putin was thinking, well, I'm not going to do anything like, yeah, I, we, 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 we like Trump. We said, yeah, my man is Biden. I find it hard to believe that he, he, he thinks highly of Biden at all. I mean, after everything that Biden has done, this 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 war in Ukraine and everything that he actually thinks oh he's he's a good person he's predictable he's a politician of the old school I mean, it's like it's, uh, it's just uh, I it, I think it's just done you know with a view to uh, hurting Biden. No, I I I think I'm I'm very sympathetic with your analysis as well, and I I, I kind of appreciated a few of the subtle a few of the subtle very diplomatic but little subtle jabs like saying, of course, you know, he bumped his head a few times yes. when he visited, but who hasn't bumped their <laughs> head? Bumped his head? Down. <laughs> but ever fallen asleep, but who hasn't fallen asleep now and That's again? Right. I, I get yeah, tired. Yeah. And... Yes, he was sitting there reading from his notes, but you know, I, I, you know, I, I read from my notes as well. I've never seen him read from his notes. I mean, I, he always speaks. <laughs> I've never seen him look down at notes. Yeah, but you know, I read from notes as well. Well, that's that's the beauty is I think he's playing. Uh, he has this sense of humor, and I, I think he. Yeah. One thing about technocrats is that they don't have a sense of humor. These liberal technocrats are so rigid and literalist that they don't know how to how to like see a satire. They they, they yes. just can't see a joke, and so it's a great way to screw with their heads. Yes. <laughs> it's just to use some yes. irony, some little sarcasm, and it, it's wonderful. It's, no, it's I, I I I agree. He he has a very subtle sense of humor. It's like because you know he um, you know his his face is quite impassive, so you don't quite notice that he's actually said something uh, rather amusing. Uh, yeah, and so yes, he was kind of really damning uh, Biden with faint praise, and then of course the next day Biden you know came out with that whole harangue about Navalny and Putin and how evil he is. It's a, you could see you know here he is being kind of subtly diplomatic about Biden, and then Biden is just ranting and raving uh, about Putin. Yeah, right. It's uh, it's quite a quite an interesting little piece of anyway. It, it's 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 good. So, as we we roll out towards the end of the, this conversation, um, what would be a sane pathway? Um, if if the West is fit to survive, if if and that's a big if, if the West is fit to survive, what would be a sane, possible, viable pathway to move into a world that has a future that doesn't involve us self imploding? And maybe unleashing some new World War One chain of re chain of, of reactions um, that involve nuclear weapons. So, what what do you think of as a sane approach that needs to be revived? If let's say we get a, a, a Trump presidency again, let's say possible, <laughs> what would you yeah. like to see? Well, I, I would like to see some form of a revived um, Helsinki kind of peace conference. So something, you know, that what they did in 1975, where all of the protagonists of the Cold War, you know, the West and East, uh, came and essentially recognized one another's um, uh, territories, uh, recognized that they had different governments, that they weren't going to try and um, knock over one another's governments. Um, and that they were all going to be committed to peace and stability 
uh, for the future. No one's going to try and enhance his own security at the other's expense. I think that was a historic a breakthrough. Um, I'd like to see something like that. I think um, Trump may be the person to do it. I mean, Trump is a kind of imaginative figure and he might say, hey, you know, rather than just make it all about Russia and Ukraine, let's put the Russia-Ukraine conflict within the context of a, uh, a global security conference. Absolutely. Adults in the room. We need some adults in the room. George Zamorelli, anybody wants to listen to you, go to The Gaggle on uh, Mobile.